You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Now, as we've seen, things have really begun to heat up in Jesus' life and ministry, especially the attention that he's garnered from the religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 15, we saw the religious leaders from Jerusalem come to Jesus in order to question him concerning the ceremonial practices of his disciples. And Jesus used that to launch into an earth-shattering teaching concerning sin and its true origination, the problem of sin within the heart of man. But here in verse 1 of chapter 16, the attention shifts from the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. It says in verse 1 that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, a couple of things to clarify here in this first verse. First of all, to just simply revisit the identity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two groups were both religious leaders in Israel, but they were not friends. They were common enemies against each other, sort of the Republican and the Democrat in power there in Israel, but in a religious leadership kind of sense, which really in one sense was the political leadership as far as Israel was concerned. The Pharisees started out well, and loved scripture, but over time devolved into strict traditionalism, which I think is a danger for really any body of believers, any Christian, any denomination to start out well, but then shift into a love for tradition over a love for the word of God. And the Pharisees were more popular with the common man, the masses, and they received tradition, as we saw in Matthew 15, their traditions on equal authority or above Scripture. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a group who disbelieved in the supernatural. And uh, basically, they were wealthy liberalists. They had a very liberal view of Scripture. The high priests and the chief priests were often Sadducees, and they held a majority of the 70 seats on the Sanhedrin, they cooperated with Rome, which led them to positions of great wealth. And so these two groups were at odds with one another. And they come together, and here in verse 1, it says that they tested Jesus and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So they're asking for not any old miracle, but a sign, a sign from heaven. Now, of course, there seems to be a little bit of irony, at least, in the timing of this request, because we've just completed Matthew 15, where at the end of it, Jesus miraculously fed the 4,000 in the wilderness, which, of course, followed his miraculous feeding of the 5,000. But probably what's going on here is that they weren't simply ignoring the reports of the miracles that they'd previously received, but they were probably looking for something different than the miracles that Jesus had performed. They were looking for some kind of specific 
sign from heaven that Jesus was the Messiah. Some think that what they were looking for specifically was Jesus calling down fire from heaven to destroy some kind of Roman political adversary. So Jesus answered them in verse 2 and said, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil, verse 4, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So Jesus here begins by rebuking these men by sharing with them, listen, you guys, you know how to discern the weather. You're able to figure out in the evening or in the morning, you see clues as to what the weather will be like. It is obvious to you. You know, Jesus is saying, whether or not to bring your jacket, but even though you can figure out when to bring a jacket, you have no idea about the times that you are living in, Jesus announced to them. You can see the sky, but you do not understand the signs of the times. I believe that these men should have known that the Messiah was coming. I believe that the prophecy specifically in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel or the 77s of Daniel, a prophecy that concerned a season of time that was 490 years long. I believe that they should have known that they were at the 483rd year of Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel revealed in Daniel 9 verse 25 that at the 483rd year, the Messiah would be revealed. And so I think they should have had a little bit of discernment to understand the signs of the times that they were in. They shouldn't need a miracle from heaven or a sign from heaven. They should have just known and anticipated that this was the moment that the Messiah would come and that Jesus fit the bill. That said, it is interesting to consider what an astute spiritual weatherman would say about the times that we are living in. Jesus called the days to come the beginning of sorrows. And as you look around, it seems as if the fulfillment of so many of Christ's prophecies have come to pass and are coming to pass. This is a day where famine and natural natural disasters have increased. It seems as if with the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the times are short. And so Jesus told them, no sign will be given you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is it that Jesus is referring to here with the sign of the prophet Jonah? In another place, he they record him saying, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is referring to the resurrection. And of course, the resurrection is the vital sign to the believer. Uh, the Christian faith is built upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With the resurrection, Christians stand on solid ground. Without 
the resurrection, however, we are a lost people indeed. Even Paul the Apostle confessed that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are still in our sins and are of all people a most pitiable. Josh McDowell said it this way. He said, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. And obviously, I lean strongly towards the latter. His impact on history, fulfilled prophecy, are great and wonderful, but his resurrection from the dead is the capper of all of his credentials. And for me, I can not explain the resurrection away, so I'm bound to follow Christ. He was really dead, he was really raised, and he really truly appeared to a group of people who were persecuted for professing that they had seen him risen from the dead. Now, it says in verse 5 that after Jesus had left them, that when the disciples reached the other side, verse 5, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, before we get into the backdrop of the disciples forgetting to bring any bread, Jesus gives them an exhortation that's related to the situation that they just been through. The Pharisees and the Sadducees making a request for a sign. Here Jesus says, beware of the leaven of that group that we just interacted with. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now in one sense, in a few verses, we're going to see that Jesus was warning them concerning the teaching, verse 12, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, he spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod as being hypocrisy. So the hypocritical teaching, doctrine, manner of life in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the followers of Herod, Jesus said, watch out for that brand of hypocrisy in your life. Take heed. Watch out. Be, a, be on guard against that thing taking root inside of your life. And it behooves the Christian to make sure that they're a person who is consistent through and through, that their belief system is firm. But I think what Jesus is referring to here is a manner of life that is consistent with the word of God, not hypocritical, that you would watch out for that leaven of compromise that enters in. Paul told the Ephesian church at the end of his letter to the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. One of the things that he tells them to put on is a breastplate of righteousness and a belt of truth. Personally, I believe that it's very possible that both of those are pointing to not the truth of God's word and the righteousness that is imputed to us, but a manner of life a true life, a consistent life, and a righteous life before God and men. There is a great weapon in our stance against the enemy in having a non-hypocritical, consistent life. 
So verse 7, it says that they began discussing it among themselves, this word from Jesus saying, we brought no bread. You know, they heard Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they worried and said, well, he's saying these things because we've brought no bread. But Jesus, verse 8, aware of this said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus asks them some searching questions there on the boat. All of them coming to the conclusion of, do you not understand and do you not remember? In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, you have misapplied the feeding miracles. I fed the 5,000, I fed the 4,000, and here we are on the boat, and you think that I am worried that you've brought no bread. And so he says, listen, you do not understand and you do not remember. Understand means you observe something and you apply it correctly. They had seen the feeding of the five and four thousand, but they'd yet to personalize those miracles for themselves. And believers of every age would do well to personalize those miracles, to say, Lord, I believe and trust that you are going to provide for all of my needs according to your riches and glory. But he says you don't understand, but you also don't remember. You don't remember. How is it that you do not yet perceive and how is it that you do not yet remember? This means that they had simply straight up forgotten the work of God in their midst. And so often we forget the things that God has done. We forget the faithfulness of the Lord in the past in scripture to the church but also in our own lives and we need to remember his faithfulness and so then verse 12 they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees now verse 13 when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So here they are in a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now this is 30 miles north of Galilee. And he turns to his disciples in this very unique place. And he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This was a title that Jesus had adopted for himself from the book of Daniel and from the book of Ezekiel. He is clearly the son of God, God the son, but he's identifying with mankind. Who do, who do people say that the son of man is? And they give him four specific responses. Uh, one is they say, some say John the Baptist. And uh, perhaps because when John came, he had a message of repentance. And this was also a message that Jesus himself echoed. And we know that Herod 
uh, assumed that Jesus was John, risen from the dead, in part because of his guilty conscience as a result of beheading John the Baptist. Others, they say, say Elijah. Now, Elijah had performed many miracles, and so here comes Jesus working many incredible miracles, some of them involving food like Elijah had done, and so they believe that Elijah has returned. And of course, there were prophecies in Malachi that suggested that Elijah would come before the Messiah. They say, and others, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had such deep compassion. He was called by many the weeping prophet. So perhaps the compassion of Christ stood out to some, and they thought this must be Jeremiah come back from the dead. Or they say in verse 14, one of the prophets. So a generic kind of statement, perhaps a reference to Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, where a prophet like Moses is prophesied of. And of course, Jesus was the fulfillment of that particular prophet. But some people seem to be referencing various prophets and saying, listen, I, perhaps he's just one of the prophets come back from the dead. Take your pick on which prophet and uh, perhaps that's who he is. And of course, these four things, John, Jeremiah, Elijah, the prophets, these four identities and the things people were saying about Jesus did not change his reality one iota. He is the great I am, but they were making their confessions about him. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a major statement from Peter, a shining moment in his life. Jesus looks at them and says, you know, who do you say that I am? And this is, of course, the question that every person on earth has to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he merely a teacher? Is he merely a good man, a religious leader? Is he the first to realize some kind of spiritual plateau that the rest of mankind needs to try to emulate? Or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? This is a major pronouncement in two significant ways. First of all, the Christ. Uh, they'd said this previously, but always after the miraculous, but now they are sure, and Peter is sure, you are the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has been pointing to. You are the coming Savior, the Christ. But additionally, the Son of the living God, he had begun to understand and recognize who he was dealing with. I am dealing with God's Son, which of course for Peter and everybody in that culture was an absolute statement of deity. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus rejoices over this moment in Peter's life, and 
announces to Peter, listen, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was God who had put this word in Peter's mind. Now, Peter, in other words, had received a revelation. He would have to get used to that experience. He would receive revelations in the book of Acts. He would also receive revelation as he penned some of God's word in First and Second Peter. And so he says, this is a message that is from God. When you call me the Christ or the Son of God, you've made a good statement. Now, he says there in verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter's name does mean rock, but there are a few different ways people interpret Jesus's saying. For one, people believe, well, the church is built on the rock of Christ. That's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. The church will be built upon Christ. And the totality of the New Testament seems to point to this interpretation because Jesus himself is the foundation and the cornerstone of the church. He is the 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 firm foundation upon which we are built. Another view of this is that the church is built upon the rock of the apostolic band or group. And there is a little bit of scriptural support for this interpretation. We're built upon Christ, but also the foundation of the apostles along with Christ. But then there is another view that says that the church is built not on Christ and not on the apostles, but the church is built on Peter. And uh, in a few short verses, we're going to see Peter rebuked and corrected. I don't think that's the interpretation that Jesus had in mind. I think that he's saying that the rock is Christ. The rock is Jesus. The church will be built upon him. But notice that he says there in verse 18, and I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is Jesus who will build. Nothing can stop the building of the church. You know, we live in an era where some can find statistics to show that the church is on some kind of decline, but, and some worry, will there be a future generation to proclaim and declare the gospel? There has always been a future generation to declare and proclaim the gospel. The work of God will not stop. The work of God cannot stop. And so nothing can stop the building of Jesus' church. Jesus then gives to the disciples some great promises. He says, listen, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is under attack, but it is also on the attack. And the schemes and the gates of the devil will not prevail and cannot prevail against the church. And then in verse 19, Jesus gives keys to them. He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there is likely an exclusivity to this statement with the apostolic group, and perhaps even Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 seems to use the keys by going to Cornelius' house and preaching the gospel for the first time. But bigger picture, we are involved in the saving of souls. We help introduce people to eternity.
Now from that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter seems to get a little too big for his britches. He's rejoicing over the great commendation Jesus gave to him. And so Jesus turned and said to Peter, Behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, this is Satan's message, in other words, to skip out to avoid the cross. So with that message in mind, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're not here to avoid our cross. We're here to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after Jesus Christ. Now, this is beautiful because Jesus' wonderful atoning work upon the cross was, of course, primarily an atoning, salvific event and, you know, was the greatest event in all of human history whereby he was making atonement and redeeming a people unto himself. But secondarily, as a distant second, but nonetheless a very strong message for God's people, Jesus was also living out an example for his people to follow, the pattern of a true disciple. After belief in Christ, we then are to self-deny. He said, deny himself. Not necessarily through asceticism, but the laying down of rights, as, as Jesus did, a, a great humility. He says, take up your cross. Now, this isn't just a trial or a difficulty. A cross is something that you choose, whereas trials and difficulties often are not chosen. This, these are not consequences. Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, endure the consequences of your sin He's saying, take up your death device. That's what the cross was. This is the laying down of life. And follow me, Jesus said. This is a life that brings honor to Christ. For whoever, verse 25, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The great paradox of the Christian life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul, his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's just this strange thing that happens in the life of a believer. When we lay down our lives, we think it's so sacrificial, but we're actually blessed. We find our lives as we lose them. He says for verse 27, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Listen, it's a great investment to lay your life down here because Jesus repays very well. Truly, verse 28, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And there are various different views on how this was particularly fulfilled, but I think that Jesus was referring to an event that would be found in Matthew chapter 17. The appearance on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And I think there were those 
who did not taste death until they saw the Son of Man in glory coming in his kingdom. But there are other interpretations of this as well, but I think that this is the interpretation that works best, his appearance to Peter and James and John. But lay down your life for this Christ. Take up your cross, follow after Jesus. You will be rewarded richly for all of eternity. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.